0: Exploring the intersection of, of medicine, medicine, sports, and pop culture, this is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the podcast. If you didn't catch last week's episode, make sure to check it out. I heard from a lot of you that you were fascinated by our discussion about cats that are hoarders. If you're an animal lover, you have to take a listen to episodes 11 and 12. And for today's episode, let's talk about the age-old controversy of nature versus nurture. To frame the topic, I'll ask you the question, were you born to do what you do, or were you trained to do it? For you physicians out there, is there something inherent in your DNA that predisposed you to become a good doctor, or was it the years of education in school that taught you all you needed to know? There's been many attempts to explain the role that nature versus nurture has in all of us, and in today's episode, we delve further into this issue. The population we look at in today's episode, medical researchers. That's right, the intelligent, hardworking folks that spend long hours in the lab creating experiments, testing hypotheses, and ultimately finding answers that help to propel medicine forward. My guest today, Dr. Wesley Greenblatt, Help study a population of researchers in an attempt to answer the question, are innovators made or are they simply born? Dr. Greenblatt is a pediatrician, like me, at Boston Children's Hospital and a PhD candidate at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He was part of a team that studied a group of research hopefuls during the Vietnam War that began identifying themselves, somewhat ironically, as the Yellow Berets, a contrast to the elite Green Beret US Army Special Forces. In today's episode, Dr. Greenblatt tells us a story about how a surprising discovery set the stage for an investigation into whether innovators are made or simply born. Enjoy. Dr. Wes Greenblatt, thanks for joining us on the Doctors Are People Two podcast. How are you today?
1: Wonderful. Thank you uh, so much for having me today.
0: Absolutely. We always like to start our interviews here with an icebreaker. So my question to you is: What is your typical morning routine?
1: Uh, well, uh, I'm uh, very lucky to live very close to work, so I love to have a nice work uh, walk over. Uh, I listen to Audibles on the way over, and the most important part of my morning is getting my Starbucks, um, and then uh, you know get to work in the office.
0: I think a lot of us can relate to the Starbucks is the, the best part of the morning. And in addition to being a PhD student, you're also a fellow pediatrician. And of course, I'm a little biased in terms of, uh, you know, I think pediatrics is probably the best specialty to work in. But what drew you to pediatrics when you were deciding what you should do?
1: I, Like I think many pediatricians, you know, I love working with kids. And I think there's so much diversity. And that's both in terms of uh, the different ages you get to work with, but also the very different diseases you get to see. And so I just found it, you know, very, very rewarding.
0: That's great. And like I mentioned, you're a PhD student, and I'm always interested in, in people's journeys. You know, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to create this podcast. What led you to decide to pursue a PhD, and what are you pursuing a PhD in?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a PhD student at uh, the MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, and there I studied the economics of medical innovation and entrepreneurship. You know, I've always been interested in those topics, but as I went through my training, I realized if I wanted to contribute to research. I wanted to get serious research training. And I felt, you know, what better way to do that than to do a PhD and really try to dig my teeth into these issues.
0: A natural segue into the topic that we're going to be talking about today, your research paper, paper titled Long-Term Effects from Early Exposure to Research Evidence from the NIH Yellow Berets. And we're going to get into all the details. Um, I I was struck at least initially reading the beginning (laughs) of the paper, where in your introduction, you mentioned that innovators are not merely born, they're made. So let's, we'll get into all the details, but let's just take a step back. And, and why don't you start telling us who are the Yellow Berets? Uh,
1: yeah, so the Yellow Berets really refers to the associate uh, training program at the NIH. Um, and this program actually predated the period that we study, the period during the Vietnam War. Uh, so it was founded, in, I believe, in 1953. Uh, And the idea was for doctors uh, to spend two years, two to three years doing research at the NIH. And they usually did this uh, usually after one year of internship and one year of their residency. Um, And that was with the idea of really uh, getting them to enter research and become physician scientists.
0: And one of the interesting aspects of your paper is that before a surprising discovery in 2015, you would never have been able to do this research? So, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: That's right. So, uh, the NIH archivist uh, Barbara Harkins found a, a box full of the applicant cards of non accepted applicants. So, these were uh, doctors who passed the first round of uh, first screening round, were invited to an interview at the NIH, but then ultimately didn't get a position. Um, and this Uh, This led us kind of to develop a counterfactual. In other words, what would have happened to doctors had they not attended the program? You know, we spent a lot of time in the paper thinking about this idea of, you know, of selection or, you know, also of what we call admitted variable bias, the idea that, well, if we see outcomes among people who attended the program, are they better just because, you know, these doctors are more talented, they've done more research before, the interviewer had um, uh, thought that they might have more research potential. And so this was a first step, and we do some other uh, statistical techniques to try to get at, you know, what would happen if they didn't attend the program in a credible way.
0: And I think it always shows you a little bit of luck when you're doing research. It's not always a bad thing. <laughs> what else can you tell us about the, the associate training program, the ATP program at the NIH?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the things that's very unique about this program um, was uh, its design. By design, it tried to really emphasize teaching the research process rather than just giving research experiences. In other words, learning how to do research rather than doing particular projects. So they tried to give um, associates a lot of academic freedom. Um, It was also, in addition to this uh, research experience, they also actually ran a basic science course, almost kind of similar to university science courses um, for those uh, associates who might not have had as strong of a research background. Um, and I think the other thing that was really unique about this uh, was what was going on in history. So this happened during the, uh, the tumultuous years of the Vietnam War, uh, and that led a lot of doctors to apply to the program who might not have otherwise applied. You know, I think we estimate, you know, in 1963, I believe, no, 1965, about 20% of, of male medical students applied to uh, the program. but probably most medical students, above 50 percent, were applying during the height of the Vietnam War. And so there was this feeling a little bit of being in the right place at the right time, that there was this concentration of talent at the NIH due to this um, that really made it uh, a remarkable place to be doing research at the time.
0: Yeah, I think the historical context is really interesting, especially as we'll we'll talk a little bit later about the, you know, current potential implications of of the research. And, you know, I think it, it The fact that it was being done in the middle of the Vietnam War, influencing a lot of people to apply to this program, I think, is is a major part of this paper. You mentioned the subjects that you studied. And, of course, in medicine, randomized control trials are the gold standard. And ideally, you have near identical populations that you're able Mm -hmm. to put one through an intervention and one to study as a control and then compare the two. And in finding these note cards uh, of these individuals who applied, interviewed, but ultimately did not get it. That's probably as comparable a group as you could ever have.
1: That's right, and and you know I think there's still some residual concern, right? Because these individuals who attended the NIH, they still had an interview when they were still actively selected. Um, But we do kind of a few things to try to get at this, you know. First, so we build out their entire career histories, and we have all of their, you know, institutions attended, and most probably most importantly, their publications and prior research experience. Whether, prior to applying, whether they were in the AOA Medical Honor Society. And so one approach we do is we use a statistical technique uh, uh, of selection on observables where we weight by these pre-application observables so that once we do these weighting our control group and our treatment group are actually equivalent across the observable characteristics we have you know the the and we spent a lot of effort on our paper trying to convince our readers of this you know i think another thing that we tried to argue about is that you know the key thing that we're missing we don't actually have the interview reports but there's also this literature that suggests well these interviews are probably not that informative that unstructured interviews often don't add a lot of information. In fact, if you add a noisy signal to what's already a very good signal, you may actually impair decision-making. And interestingly, there's a very – in 1979 at the University of Texas at Houston, there was a legislative decree that led 50 students who had been interviewed and rejected to actually be accepted. And those students actually had equivalent outcomes to those who were accepted initially. And this kind of supports the idea that the interview is probably not adding a lot of information beyond what they already had.
0: And that's interesting. You never know. Maybe in a couple of years, those interview transcripts will uh, will show their faces. Um, but I think what you mentioned in terms of how you collected the, the outcome data in terms of the publications uh, was really interesting. I think it's a, a style that... I think all of us are a little bit guilty of, you know, you're checking on seeing where your old roommate ended up, seeing where an old coworker ended up, right? I could just imagine being a, a research assistant on this, being like, this is great. I could I Google my way through this project. Uh, I think it's a really unique way that you decided to do it, but it's, you know, it's the way that you had to in terms of, of getting your outcome measures.
1: That, that's right. So, you know, we combined, you know, kind of more formal sources. Um, you know, we used the American Medical Association Physician Master File. Uh, and sources such as that with also just a lot of elbow grease and, you know, Google and newspaper clippings and, you know, unfortunately obituaries. Um, And so, you know, between all these sources and LinkedIn, we're often able to kind of get a, you know, close to a year by year uh, accounting of the physician's time.
0: I think it shows you technology is not always bad. And I, I'm sure in where you work as well, that the Internet and, and all of the new innovations when it comes to technology is really leading to you know, a new wave of types of research. And certainly being able to look online is something that you may not have been able to do 25 years ago to track these people's careers. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how you chose uh, the outcome measures that you did. And I'll make in comparison to, you know, you're up in Boston, Boston Red Sox baseball. You know, we have career statistics, hits, RBIs, home runs. We judge a person's career based on those, and, and if they're good enough, they get into the Hall of Fame. Now, you had to come up with a way to figure out, you know, what are the career statistics of researchers? And you mentioned a couple of them, but but how did you go about figuring out what are really those things that you're going to look at to decide whether a career was successful in this realm?
1: Yeah, so I think we focus on kind of three broad categories. You know, I think the first one we focused on is, do they enter into research careers? You know, so do they take a job at an academic medical center? Do they actually do research if they take such a job? Or you can do research in the private industry as well. The second broad class of outcomes we looked at is, you know, we think of as research productivity. And that's how many papers do you have, but also how many patents, how often are your papers and patents cited, how many NIH grants do you have, you know, because you can enter into research and, you know, you can be very productive or you can, you know, not not be very good at it or only do it part-time. And then the final thing we looked at, uh, which I think is particularly interesting in this setting, is we tried to look at the type of research that they do, you know, and in particular, um, the NIH at the time uh, was uh, was well-known for doing what we might think of as translational research, you know, the idea of trying to bridge the bench uh, to the patient divide or patient-inspired basic science research. Um, and so to get at this, we used uh, mesh, so Medical Subject Headings, which is a, terms used to index the biomedical literature, and we used this to try to look at what type of research they were actually doing.
0: That's great. And I think we'll we'll use that segue to, to dive into some of the results. And, you know, I'll sort of uh, give an overview summary, one line uh, about some of the results, if you could expand on them. Um, you know, the first result that stood out to me and that you mentioned in the paper is that ATP attendees chose academic and research careers at a more pronounced rate compared to non attendees. I'd imagine that this maybe wasn't as surprising result as you could have imagined.
1: Now, I think we would be very worried if we didn't see this result for our paper. Um, No, I think what was remarkable about that, I mean, so one was the magnitude, you know, uh, but it was also that it was durable. It wasn't just that they picked their first job in research at a higher rate, but that when we looked at their last job, you know, it was also still in research at almost an equivalent rate. Um, And, you know, one thing just to emphasize, because this program, our period of interest was 1965 to 1975, I believe the youngest uh, the youngest person in our sample in 2017, when we, you know, kind of closed our study, you know, was I think was 65 years old. So, you know, when we look at these career outcomes, these are really looking at, you know, the twilight of their career, or in many cases, you know, at retirement.
0: And I think what stood out to me is the durability, like you mentioned, that, you know, we may think back at, at some of our experiences, high school, college, medical school, and, Alright, you, you know, you develop all their interests as you go along, but really this is showing that this intense period of their research time, uh, really did impact them and, and sustained that gap between the attendees and the non-attendees as they went through their entire career, which was really interesting. How about this one? ATP attendees have on average over twice the number of career publications. Now I'd imagine, you know, I would have guessed it was going to be more than non-attendees, but double, it seems like a lot.
1: I think that is a lot. And I think, you know, the other thing to add is that when we do that measure, that's actually controlling for the idea that ATP attendees go into research um, more frequently. So that's kind of like, you can almost think of it as as if you have an attendee and a non-attendee who both start a research career, what's the rate of publications afterwards? Um, You know, I think the thing I'd add to that is it's not just that they do more publications, but it's also that their publications have higher impact. Um, So they're cited more frequently and particularly they're cited more frequently at the very tail. So they have more Grand Slam papers, not just more basics.
0: This third conclusion, here's a word I had to look up, fecundity. I had to look up the pronunciation (laughs) also, but the ability to produce an abundance of offspring or new growth. And in this context, you not only looked at the success of attendees of the program, but the success of their trainees. What did you find there?
1: That's right. So we, we found that ATP attendees, uh, you know, so if you uh, are doing research, one of your important roles is to mentor the next generation of researchers. And we found that the ATP attendees actually mentored more such researchers. And we kind of defined those as uh, those people who are a first author on a paper with an ATP attendees, uh, who then themselves went to go on and uh, receive NIH funding as an independent investigator. And so we think this is kind of an important way that we might, that uh, what's unique about the ATP experience might kind of be passed on over time. So the method of research that these ATP attendees learned might be passed along through subsequent generations of researchers uh, through this process.
0: Yeah, I think the lasting impact is really remarkable. And I like this outcome. The last one we'll talk about, not an outcome you often see, the number of Nobel Prize (laughs) winners. That was a cool one. (laughs)
1: I think it just goes to speak, so what were there, seven Nobel Prize, I think, in the attendee group? I believe group. So, yeah. I believe there were zero in the non-attendee group. You know, I think it just goes to show that this really was a remarkable time period where just, you know, almost all the best and brightest at the time were all gathered at the NIH, and it just made it a very exciting, dynamic research environment. Um, and when we read the oral histories that were done at this time, we just keep on hearing that again and again and again from attendees.
0: As we sort of wind down talking about this article, what are the things that stick out to you? What are the big takeaways, you know, maybe aside from what we've already talked about that you got from this research?
1: You know, I think you hit on one of the main points, which is this idea that, uh, that exposure can really dictate or shape whether or not you enter into research. So, you know, we often might think of, you know, that the researchers are these lone geniuses and they're just born with this amazing talent. Um, and obviously the talent you're born with is very important, but it's also shaped by your environment, and it's shaped by the institutions and the other things that support you on your journey. And I think, you know, from a more policy perspective, you know, it, it leads to a lot of interesting questions, you know. How much do you want to concentrate talent in one location? How intensive of an experience do you need to have to have this kind of treatment effect that we saw? You know, the ATP was very intense, two to three years, uh, a really rich environment. How much Will we still see that effective as we start to dilute it, um, and you know also when is the optimal time to do it. So you know these this isn't mid-career individuals; these aren't high school students, but these are doctors who generally have uh, have completed you know they've completed medical school, they've completed a lot of their clinical training, um, and so I think that's another unanswered question of the paper is what are the trade-offs with the different timing of these sort of exposure effects in terms of leading people to do research careers?
0: Right, you talk about this this concept of a, a pre-doc as opposed to a post-doc, which we're a little bit more familiar with, but let me ask you, you mentioned it there, the, the real life implications of this study. Sam, I'm a major academic center, and there've been centers that, that have okay. you know created programs like the ATP, but I'm reading your study and I see the profound impact that this program had on researchers like we said, not just in the moment, but going forward in their career and their trainee's career. Can I read this and, 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 you know, pitch an idea to my institution that we need to replicate this? You know, can this same thing be done during this time?
1: You know, I think that's an open question. You know, I I think what we really show is that uh, exposure to research can durably lead people to enter into research careers. But I think what's hard to know, and this is kind of that point I spoke about uh, just a minute ago, is how much can we dilute it? You know, the NIH was a very special place, and, you know, that's during the years of the Vietnam War and all the concentration and talent we talked about. And so it's unclear if I'm an academic medical center and I, you know, create a fellowship, you know, very well-meaning and devote resources, but it's hard to replicate the hot house of the NIH. Um, And so... You know, it suggests that, one, that a lot of these research programs that we have really do probably have an impact, you know, that spending time doing research really can lead people to end up doing research. Um, But I also think that kind of emphasizes a call to action, that, you know, one of the best ways to study this would be if when we design uh, research programs, We consider the evaluation of the program in the design of the program, and I think we can use that to try to advance the idea of what aspects of this program are really important uh, to design design more effective programs in the future.
0: I think that was one of my big takeaways, and you talk about that at the end of the the paper, the importance of evaluating those programs. Was there anything surprising in the research that that you had?
1: You know, I think one of the things that really stood out to me, which we haven't hit on yet, is this idea of research style that, you know, the people who attended the ATP, they didn't just do more research, but they did more translational research, particularly in basic science research. And in fact, if we look at research that we might think of as just clinical, they actually did it at the same rate as non-attendees. So it really, I think, goes to show that it really is precisely the same sort of research they experienced at the NIH is precisely the same sort of research that they did later. Um, and, and I was really struck by that.
0: Taking a step back, what was your experience like doing this research? Give us a little bit of insight you know, for the audience in terms of what doing research like this is like.
1: Well, it, it just takes a lot of uh, a lot of careful work. And, you know, and that's both um, in constructing the data set, you know, which like a lot of social science research is actually uh, the, the majority of the work. Um, but you know, we also spent a lot of time making sure we got the empirics just right, um, and so you know, there was uh, a lot of trial, a- trial and error, and a-, a lot of doing things multiple times to make sure we you know really find our approach.
0: That's great. And we mentioned at the at the outset that you're pursuing a PhD. So what's next in terms of your your next big research project? What could we be on the lookout for?
1: Uh, so I have a, a project that I'm just finishing up now, where I look at the impact of clinical practice guidelines on medical innovation. So, you know, these professional medical society guidelines, they were created to reduce uh, cost and improve the quality of care. But in fact, actually, uh, they have a substantial impact on uh, innovation.
0: It's interesting. We'll certainly be looking after that. And my, my final question to you, and we ask all of our guests here, if they're listeners who would like to do what you do, and we'll put it in the context of either pursuing a research career or even going into pediatrics, what advice do you have for them?
1: You know, I think for pursuing research in this area, I just say, you know, get your hands dirty. There's no better way to learn than to learn by doing um, and reach out and find someone who has some projects and get involved, you know, and, you know, kind of the same thing for pediatrics. You know, um, uh, if you're thinking about doing it, one of the best things you can do is reach out to pediatricians and try to spend some time shadowing them and, you know, get to know what the field is all about. That's
0: great. We got two of them right here, so they can reach out to us. We'll be happy to give some advice. Dr. Wes Greenblatt, thanks for joining us on the Doctors Are People Two podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Josh.
0: I hope you found Dr. Greenblatt's work as fascinating as I did. From the unexpected discovery of no cards that allowed the study to even be done, to the internet-based methodology that his team used to track individual careers. The story of the Yellow Berets is one that is as interesting as it is unique. For those of you who enjoy medical history, the Yellow Berets is certainly the story for you. As we touched on in the discussion, it is interesting to think about whether the NIH ATP could be replicated today. The historical context of the Vietnam War certainly played a large role in the types of applicants to the program, and the time at which applicants would participate in the program after their first two years of residency training makes the structure of the ATP stand out as compared to medical and research training today the most impressive result to come out of Dr. Greenblatt's research, that seven ATP graduates were recipients of the Nobel Prize, as compared to none in the control group. And one more fun fact about the program, one individual who we saw a lot of on television over the last two years is a graduate. Any guesses? That would be one Dr. Anthony Fauci. Have a good week, everyone. We'll speak with you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show, maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Take care.